Welcome to the What We Need Now podcast by Greenpeace USA. This episode is a minisode. So, we'll get right into the topic. This month, we're examining some of the other factors that impact Black health and wellness, including our diet and various social and economic issues. And we are excited about the two guests we have with us today who are going to be highlighting the role individuals and organizations can play in reducing health disparities and improving the health of Black communities. Yes. We have Tambra Ray Stevenson, the founder and CEO for Wanda Women Advancing Nutrition, Dietetics, and Agriculture, building a pipeline of a million women and girls to lead from farm to health through education. Tambra is appointed to the D.C. Food Policy Council, has been recognized as the 2021 Science Defender by the Union of Concerned Scientists, is a change maker um, in the food system, has been a National Geographic traveler. The resume is very, very long. You got to go to the website to read it all. But someone who's very, very qualified in working both in looking at food systems here in the U.S. and internationally, also had high-level meetings at the U.N. Commission for Women's NGO Forums. And our other guest today is Dr. Kelly Page Drabil, who is a global strategist working all around the world and in every region in Africa. Dr. Kelly has been known as a visionary change agent with worldwide clients. She works with the United States and foreign governments, has worked with embassies, private companies, um, and she's been working in strategic direction, leadership support, implementation, organizational change management, communication, and facilitation, and is the founder of Satcham Global LLC and has worked as a management consultant as well, and is also a adjunct professor at Howard University. We're going to be talking about many, many things with them, but I wanted to uh, briefly have each of them introduce themselves as well, if there's anything they wanted to add. So um, I'll start with you, Tambra. Could you please say your name and pronouns and anything else that you want to say about how you identify yourself? Yes, I'm Tambra Stevenson. I am she, her, hers, and I identify as um, a Black woman who hails from the state of Oklahoma that is very much agricultural and oil state and that connects to my African heritage, which is Fulani's in Hausaland, northern Nigeria, which is very much um, ag and oil as well. So it all comes full circle. Mm. Thank you for that. And, uh, and Dr. Kelly. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm Dr. Kelly Page Jabril. I am she, her, hers. And as a global strategist, I wanted to help those with great ideas, visionaries, uh, shape them and implement them around the world. So I, that's what I've committed my life toward doing professionally. And it's been extraordinary um, to see the realization of, of dreams and ideas toward implementation in a sustained way. And so um, I'm glad I've been able to navigate a profession that allows me to do that and meet incredible people and support those initiatives. I am also adjunct faculty teaching international business to MBAs at Howard University, helping to empower additional uh, skilled professionals to empower other visionaries as well. And lastly, I will share that I am also an installed queen mother in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. Uh, Tambra and I are very well connected in terms of our work around food and Black health and wellness in our various capacities, but I have also retraced my lineage to the continent um, as well. So these are the lenses through which I see and operate and navigate the world. 
Welcome to both of you to our What We Need podcast. We're very excited to have you. I love meeting and speaking with powerful women, doing powerful things to change the world. So can you tell us, um, Doctor, what has working internationally taught you about health systems in the U.S. and about health outcomes throughout the Black diaspora? Thank you for the question. Working around the world, I have seen just overall still a close connection to to land and to earth and understanding where the food comes from. Whereas here in the U.S., sometimes we are quite disconnected from what the natural state of food actually looks like, um, where it is grown, how it is harvested, maybe even how it's processed and, and those modifications. So going overseas, sometimes the food is quite wonderful because it's freshly picked, freshly harvested, natural. <laughs> and I'm delighted that in the U.S. we are moving toward that as well, reclaiming our local food consumption and understanding the importance of food, not just to eat, but to really nourish our bodies and ourselves and our souls. I love that picture that you just painted. <laughs> but yeah, folks are very disconnected from food here in the U.S. In your opinion, what policies and practices do you think are needed to address food apartheid and Black health and wellness in the U.S.? Yeah, thank you for the question. Food desert was a term coined maybe 20, 30 years ago. And as I shared on the stage at Food Tank, I want to pay homage again to uh, crediting Black women. Karen Washington, who hails out of New York, uh, well-known in the urban agricultural movement, coined the term food apartheid as a better description for the diagnosis of the social ills in our community. And, and I compare it to no different if you were in the field of medicine. If you go in for a broken arm, you should not come out with diabetes. And so we are in a situation where we have the wrong diagnosis to the situation. And if you have the wrong diagnosis, you cannot provide the right prognosis. And so in this case, food desert is an outsider term. Um, it only speaks to this access of healthy food in a community, but not to the structural and racial and economic barriers that had created the situation to begin with. So for instance, I live in the community of Anacostia in Washington, D.C. I literally across the street have a Safeway that was defunct and converted into a senior nutrition uh, feeding program that uh, no longer is operable and now is being converted after decades of just sitting there into a, a future pharmacy clinic. In our community of more than 150,000 east of the Anacostia River, which composes Ward 7 and 8, we have uh, a total of three full-size grocery stores, in addition to corner markets that fill in the gap, nonprofits that fill in the gap. And so what we saw during the midst of the pandemic was an exacerbation of what we call a syndemic Two or more pandemics happening at the same time of chronic disease, the COVID-19 pandemic on top of the economic pandemic that Black communities have already been experiencing. And so by sitting on our Food Policy Council for three terms now, we looked at how 
do we use a policy tool to address these issues? And one of the solutions that came out of that was the Nourish DC Fund. We understood that for too long, we have not been using the proper language. So we have adopted within the policy council, food apartheid, no longer food desert, food swamp, which are really like appendages to the body of apartheid. And then also recognizing that we um, had an opportunity to shift power of resources, which is the basis of the situation. And so the Nourish DC Fund was an opportunity to ensure that Black, Indigenous, people of color who have businesses in the district receive um, the grant, the capacity building, technical assistance in order for them to meet the needs in their own communities. And understanding that we are not the first jurisdiction to see this need um, of what it means to create local brown and Black food economies, but it's critical to acknowledge that all we need is already within. That is the motto of Wanda. We encourage more brown and Black people to get involved with their food policy councils, which is a form of ensuring that we are part of democracy as food citizens and acknowledging that economic liberation is one tool policy liberation creates enabled environment that has been disabled for too long. And even if I have the spirit of being an entrepreneur, if the environment is not conducive because there are punitive damages, there are not enough incentives to make that opportunity to thrive as an entrepreneur, you still will not have the ability to 10x as you would. You you can make a way out of no way like a good Black woman always does, but wouldn't it be helpful to have a little bit of government support as corporate welfare happens um, to help ensure capitalism happens as well? So this is making sure those policy tools are in place also for those who are in our communities who may be first-generation entrepreneurs and who need uh, just a little help in order to really help the economy and their communities and see pillars in their communities as role models for the young people to emulate versus those role models that we should not be emulating. I really, really appreciate what you, what you said. And and I, I wanted to dig in a little bit more about Wanda. You described Dr. Kelly as a quintessential Wanda woman. Can you tell me a little bit more about Wanda and what, what is that quintessential Wanda woman? Yes, I'm glad you raised that question because I thought long and hard about, one, I was the only African-American in my nutrition program at Oklahoma State University, and I started to not see people who looked like me. And I didn't even know the field of nutrition existed. And even though I come from a family of agriculture, honestly, no one really discussed or talked about it. And so I did not know I had cattlemen, cowboys, ranchers who are still very much active, who own land, who do livestock production in my family. And it was this idea of why do we not see the representation in the food system to help dispel the myths and rumors around that the only connection to the land is slavery? And I wanted to change that narrative because that narrative is is harmful because ultimately food can be our medicine. And our communities have always understood that ancestrally. And that's why we were brought to this land in the first place, because of our capacity, our competency, and our capability of really creating America's food system. And so we wanted to uplift and give honor to the culinary currency that flows through the veins of everyday Black women who have made a way out of no way in the midst of the pandemic as lunch ladies and caregivers, and those who have been the meal healers and the cultural keepers in our community. Community. And for too long, they have been extracted and erased and exploited of their labor and their love to help those who are 
part of our community and the overall society. And so Wanda embodies this concept that Black women and girls have always been there and making an impact in the food system. They have not been given their flowers. And so we, as those who are professionals in the field, even if we have five students from Howard University who went through their field experience, they've never had to learn Black women trailblazers in the food system. their history. You cannot lean in and lead if you do not know your roots. And so part of our work is acknowledging those roots, teaching that root history, and also understanding those roots connect to our food and how are we reclaiming our own food narratives. And then how are we advocating for the policy and the cultural structural changes in our communities? And how do we innovate by being entrepreneurs? And so, yes, Dr. Kelly Jabril represents the embodiment of a Wanda woman. She's not only seeking for her own entrepreneurial endeavors, but those that actually uplift and give back to our communities. And so we want to share platforms with women like her and encourage others to do the same. That when you look at your board, your staff, We want Wanda women at the helm because we know data-wise that those boards that are more diverse from a race-gender perspective will exceed and do better. And so we're just calling that out and saying, if you have Wanda women leading, you will not only get a double uh, return on your investment, you will add value and you will connect and have the currency of our communities Um, And so we understand it's not just about representation, Clarence Thomas, it's also about ideology and consciousness. And so we need all of that to be in alignment. And so that's why she is an embodiment of of Wanda. Okay, that was very powerful. And as a communication specialist, I understand the importance of words. And when you shared with us that we should be reclaiming our voice in the space and you know, just describing it as a food apartheid in a, instead of a food desert, I really felt that and appreciated it. So I will turn to Dr. Kelly, and can you share with us some more about how the history, because your work is extensively in Africa, and as you mentioned in, in the Sahel, can you share with us some of the connections that you are seeing between our history in Africa, what is going on there now, and what is happening in the diaspora in communities like America? And I'm from Jamaica, so also so Jamaica, Latin America, the Caribbean. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Well, you know, food certainly connects us. We know that from gathering around the family table or grandma's house, but certainly in the diaspora, looking at the creativity of how our shared foods have been prepared ingeniously and creatively um, with the crops that have been brought across the Atlantic. And uh, for me, that is a connector. It's a source of pride and, and certainly innovation and creativity that nourishes us culturally in terms of our pride and also the ingenuity of making use of what is available. And so certainly understanding the history of during the transatlantic slave trade of roots and seeds being hidden in the crevices of body parts and tucked in, in hair braids so that we have collard greens and watermelon and black eyed peas and 
sweet potatoes and yams, other things that we see on our plates. And so, um, you know, we look at the commonality of, of how do we celebrate? How do we convene? And I think that's something that really helps to unite us. And um, as you are a, a Jamaican woman, certainly well known for the cuisine, also having the advantage of a more tropical environment. And so you see even more parallels with some of the food crops that you see across the continent. I think when we talk about food, we also have to link to culture in terms of who harvests the food, who prepares the food, who serves the food, who gathers, who eats when. And, you know, there's almost a ritual in that process. It's not just having a plate and it's also the preparation And so what I appreciate about uh, what Wanda is doing is understanding that it can be a central nervous system, if you will, for other aspects of our history, our culture, our wellness, plus nutrition in terms of coming together. So for instance, in terms of uh, what I've seen across um, the African continent is around the world, there are still debates about the impacts of global warming and whether it exists or not. But you have some places which are effectively ground zero. And there's no debate because it's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. It is tangible. It is visible and it is urgent. And you can see the degradation of the Sahel. You can see the Sahara expanding into uh, zones of the savanna and even reaching into the forest. And so when we're talking about nutrition within the African context, and even in some cases of survival context here in the West, it's a security issue. And, And so this is something that is very important and something that I've seen as well in understanding that the vulnerability of populations, that people make decisions to survive. And some of the decisions that we see with food um, insecurity uh, really can be remedied. So the other uh, aspect I'd like to touch upon with your question is just the acknowledgement of these food deserts. And now we're using food apartheid, right? And also the the negative impact in terms of uh, food crop and production and the arable environment in which we're able to feed uh, the populations. So I think I'll share that now. I do have other examples in terms of what's going on with the continent in terms of our shared legacy in food, but harvesting is something that is communal. Harvesting, we have songs. Harvesting, we have shared community. Um, Depending on what the food crop is, you may have women who take the lead and it's their time. Others, it might be men or joint. Um, But the beauty of it is, is really the reconnection with earth. And I'm not saying that everyone has to go and grow their own food. I would encourage that even if you are limited to doing that, you can certainly grow a few fresh herbs, right? In your own space, something fresh, something that is, that you tend to um, certainly nourishes. And so I think that's something that we can reincorporate all of us um, into our daily lives. I'll say having a couple of fruit trees in my backyard for the first time in my life is a life-changing experience to be able to go out and pluck an orange. 
I don't know this to be true objectively, but it feels like it's the best tasting orange I could possibly have access to just because it comes from my yard. Uh, yes. So there's power in that for sure. Absolutely. I, I kind of wanted to pick up on a thread that I'm hearing from both of you. So Tambra, you were talking about like medicinal foods and Dr. Kelly, I think you talked about high vibrational foods. So maybe because I'm hungry, but I really want to <laughs> hear a little bit more about what are some of these foods that have really positive benefits, both for our mental health, for our emotional health, for our physical health, foods that folks should prioritize. Sure. If, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll pick up on that. Uh, since I mentioned, for example, growing your own herbs. So high vibrational foods are foods that are living, you know, that have roots and that have not been cut or deadened or, or picked or, or harvested prematurely and are transported. When I speak of high vibrational food, um, that's what goes in and feeds our system. And so the foods that have had more time to be in the sunlight and to absorb the nutrients, the minerals, the vitamins, the more you're able to also ingest. But for me, high vibrational food is also a consciousness of how the food was not only grown, harvested, but also processed and prepared. And so you want to think of the energies surrounding around what you intake. And this concept is not wholly unfamiliar where you have rabbis who pray over kosher food and you have halal food where you have imams also pray. That is a consciousness and intentionality over the food. When we think of high vibrational, for example, if you were one to eat eggs, for example, what was the life like of the chicken that was laying the eggs? right? So so there's value, for example, in the free range, being able to move and run around and, you know, that, that kind of lifespan, for example, versus something that has been caged or processed. So high vibrational foods is really giving homage to the source of nutrition that we are able to use to nourish ourselves, as I've mentioned, our bodies and our minds and our souls, and we think of food as energy. And so the energy of the food that we have does pass through us as well. And having that consciousness, just as you may pray over food for thankfulness as well. Much of the food that we see, many of the poor communities and even black communities, rural communities and disparate access use you will find across the African continent is what I might refer to as dead food. It's not only the low nutritional value, but um, highly genetically modified. It might be packaged and have a long shelf life. That is not necessarily reviving. It might satisfy an emotional need, <laughs> right? Temporarily, but it, it's not necessarily something that regenerates you, that helps to heal you. With respect to those foods, it really goes to what is really ideal in terms of its ripe and readiness. Ideally, you want to be conscious of the most local access um, as possible. Now, we don't have fruit trees like Eureka in our yards, <laughs> but it's not only helping in terms of the, the, the transit pollution from a distance, but also something that helps, again, to nurture our communities and harvesting and sharing as well. Thank you. That's a new concept to me. So I appreciate you breaking it down. Well, I'll just check real quick. Tembra, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Yeah, I just wanted to, since we 
been having a conversation around both culture and in the food as medicine movement, which has not fully embraced African cultural foods, I wanted to uplift and recognize that part of the reconnection with our work and around nutrition, as I had mentioned about not only not knowing Black women in food history, but also not knowing our own foods to begin with. And so when we think about grains in the U.S., most people have um, a low fiber intake because of really consuming a lot of refined wheat. And so being able to ingest more whole grains and cereal grasses like millet, like fonio, that are pre-probiotic, but not necessarily taught, but come from, you know, arid conditions. And so I talk about strong food for strong people that's both good for the climate, it's good for humanity and health. And ultimately, it's part of what should be a part of our diet in connecting with our ancestors because our memory cells, they remember and we unlock that. And that's what we talk about in epigenetics, about how food can be like a light switch. It can turn on and turn off. And so I think it's important to even just uplift the idea that food is not just medicine, it's identity, it's culture, it's power. And there's power in, in, in remembering that um, in thinking about hibiscus. We know that Roselle um, that comes out of West Africa, you can find it in the Searle in Jamaica, and you can find it as Bissop, and you can find it known as Zobo. And so that deep, rich color that comes from the hibiscus, these red foods are, are known for heart and circulatory health. When we think about beets and strawberries, like these are red foods and and tomatoes with the lycopene. And so to think about how are we eating by color is one way to think about it and why greens is, is like the foundation of not only our our earth, but it should be the foundation of our health. And so we should embrace all greens. I always make sure every time I go to the store that I'm picking every different kind of green to put in my diet, from kale to spinach to collard, the Brussels sprouts that I did not grow um, eating, um, and partly because I would blame, I would say don't blame the veggie, blame the cook. Some people just die fry to the side of their food. And it's like I had to remix my, you know, my cooking methods and not carry those on to the next generation because that goes on to impacting generational health. And so I don't boil greens to death. I didn't drink pot liquor juice. I saute them lightly. I turn them into a smoothie, turn them into a salad to make sure I maintain those water soluble vitamins. So those are things that what it means to have food literacy, nutrition education, that becomes very important. It's not just the product and produce that we're eating. Process matters just as much as the product. And drink your water. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, that was really powerful, understanding exactly the connections between food preparation or culture, history, and the problems that we're seeing in many Black African-American communities, again, throughout the diaspora with non-communicable diseases. I know that is a big challenge in especially the Latin American and Caribbean region, and I see that it's a growing challenge in areas of Africa. So uplifting that traditional knowledge is really important. But I want to bring us back to another question, Dr. Kelly. You mentioned some of the impacts of climate change on food scarcity. How can traditional farming help us to fight climate change? 
Uh, thank you for that question. I have done work with uh, communities in the Horn of Africa, in, in Somalia and in Kenya, where we convene the elders who hold lots of ancestral and traditional knowledge, who know the land. I think that there's a presumption that those of us educated with our degrees or coming from other climatic zones around the world and can come in and tell others what's necessary. So it's important to really listen to people who have vested interest in history of the land. And so in the Horn of Africa, we engage with the elders and came up with really rudimentary ways of helping to reestablish boreholes. And so effectively, the acacia tree, for example, really does a good job at holding the water supply in its root system. But due to economic desperation, the acacia trees were being cut down rapidly for charcoal production. And so by engaging the elder community, we used rock dam methods, very basic, to help pool the water, which made visible uh, changes and improvements with vegetation, revegetation of areas, and was even visible from Google Earth to see the rehabilitation. So that's certainly one example. Another example is that you'll find um, in the Sahel and uh, with Tambra's heritage uh, as Fulani, the Fulani are well-known as, as herders, cattle herders in particular. And so as the arable land um, becomes more scarce, you'll see Fulani herdsmen um, traveling uh, farther south and sometimes creating conflicts with some of the uh, agrarian farmers um, who find that there are food crops are being eaten by these cattle, and you have conflicts that certainly um, erupt. And so there has to be some renegotiation in terms of, of space. Um, and also what um, we have seen is you have some local communities who may work on planting maize crop, for example, that can be used to feed the cattle, but also the populations as well. So it's really renegotiating the space and the need. I think the other thing that I would like to share is when we talk about where food comes from, one of the projects I'm working on in Cote d'Ivoire is with the cashew uh, sector. It's a billion dollar sector, as it is. Most people don't know that Cote d'Ivoire is one of the top raw cashew exporters in the world. Um, when you see or, or purchase your cashew, it will often say product of India or product of Vietnam. Um, and that's because the processing and the production happens in those countries. But the origin of a lot of those foods are in the continent. And many times, because they are in a raw state, um, many of the people are not able to enjoy that nutrition. And so what we are doing is working on local food production and capacity with global food safety standards. What we have seen throughout the colonial African history is a shift from intra-African trade of goods, foods, services, including crops. And that shift uh, tended toward the trade toward the coast for export. And so much of the food production that you see on the continent 
is in its raw commodity material and is produced and it is sent to the coast to be exported for the rest of the world to produce and consume. And so countries are now beginning to make the adjustment across the African continent to have local food production for local populations in a way going back to some of the intra-African food supplies that we saw in a pre-colonial era, but also having the quality standards and the know-how to meet the um, international market needs so that now when you begin to purchase your cashew nut, you will see it as product of Cote d'Ivoire. Although that nut was always from there and most of us did not know um, with that direct access and opening the market through education um, is certainly um, really wonderful. And I just would like to add that when we talk about food and nutrition, it's important that the people whose land it grows also have access to those foods. And there is that realization that I see across the African continent as well. And so, yes, food is um, a way of economic and entrepreneurial growth, which is important. But what's also important is that it's holistic and that the people can benefit as well as on a macro level, that there can be a high quality standard that can go directly to other parts of the world as well. I think that's the first time I've ever related to the story of a cashew. <laughs> when you when you said it's always it's always come from there, but the credit has not always been been given. I feel like that's such a little microcosm for so many aspects of our culture, of our food systems. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Kelly, thank you very much for sharing that Greenpeace is very much an organization that is focused on the climate crisis, advancing racial justice, and building economies that put people first. So I was very pleased to hear the work that is going on in Africa to try to connect farmers with the benefits of their labor on a local level, but also making sure that they're connected into global markets. You shared with us earlier your very distinguished role as a queen mother. Could you tell us a little bit about how you use that role to help your community understand the linkages between health and wellness and some of the spirituality topics that you shared earlier? Thank you so much. Yes, I was really quite honored and, and surprised when I returned to my ancestral land to be twice crowned as queen mother, uh, which is effectively a female chief. It's the counterpart of the chie- chieftaincy system. And you have a woman who has that role and you are queen, not by virtue of marriage, but by the, uh, the powers and or gifts vested in you in that capacity. In my case, I am a paramount queen mother, and so I have great authority where the kingdom spans two countries in Cote d'Ivoire and in Ghana, and so I'm a queen mother at the level of a king. So you can have in the chieftaincy ranks just as you might have let's say a mayor and you might have a county level executive and you have a governor and you have president chieftaincies are similar or they might be at a village level then a region etc cetera, etc cetera, and then for an entire kingdom so in that capacity i think a lot of what our conversation today is something that i've had to embody in exploring what does this very sacred role mean for me 
And a lot of that is really reclaiming the origins of those roles because we've seen that the role of queen mother or the idea of a woman or female chief in that traditional authority had been eroded and is certainly coming back very strongly. So in that capacity, of course, we honor and uphold traditions and culture. Uh, I may have a role as a, a mediator as well, but more importantly is listening to the people. What I can share with you is that I am African-American and I uh, was born and raised in New Haven, Connecticut, which has strong ties with Greenpeace. I've been quite familiar my entire life. And so the work that I do um, across the African continent, I don't leave it there. Uh, my role also as Queen Mother and as a global strategist and as a proud Wanda woman is to help connect that bridge and linking us back together, those of us on the other side of the Atlantic, whether you are in North America, Caribbean, or South America. And so just as I gave the story of the cashews and understanding it's coming from African lands. I'd like for the access for our communities across the Atlantic to also know the source and have direct access as well. So that is really part of the healing and role of Queen Mother in terms of uh, reconnecting. And we all have had different journeys, therefore we all have different strengths. And we all have different areas in which we need to learn from one another, forgive one another, and certainly heal. So it is a huge honor for me. Specifically, where I'm a queen mother happens to be one of the most revered cashew-growing regions in the world, ironically. And the harvesting of cashew is primarily done 80% by women. And traditionally, the role of queen mother is the voice of women, children, and the community at large. And sometimes we have seen an imbalance in terms of one's voice. We talk about having a voice. And that is because in many traditional African authentic systems, uh, there was a duality, a dynamicism of masculine and feminine energy and roles. And so some of those feminine roles or voice had been muted. And so those are coming back now through rehabilitating some of the traditional systems we see. But it is important we honor the past, but also be engaged with moving forward as well. And I think that's another balance in my role as we talk about Black health and wellness and wholeness, whether I'm doing it as a global strategist or if I'm engaging as a queen mother on the continent or across our African diaspora. I kind of want to, I, I want to pull on a thread that you brought up and, and actually toss it to Tambra with Wanda and with some of the work that you're doing, specifically talking about the role of women in addressing nutrition, addressing um, some of these policies. I'm just curious, like from your perspective, what do you see as the role that women play in tackling these issues and changing our food system and, and specifically even more so for black women? Yeah, thank you for that. So Wanda, first, we're born out of love for our community. And so we see the important role that women can play in showing love as they already have in their homes, in their families, in, in their communities. And 
I do want to step back and say that I initially thought when it came to women's liberation, it was to liberate us out of the kitchen. And so I have to be honest that I did not come from a place of I always wanted to be a part of the kitchen. And I did make menus and my sister was my loyal customer and my mom's <laughs> leftovers was always the main dish on the menu. But I really it took time for me actually to become a mom to see the value of what it means to honor this space that once was the site of kitchen rape stories during Annabellum South and to retransform that space into spaces of healing and turn it into sanctuary to heal our meals. And so that started with a mental shift. And, th- and that's what I would say first has to happen with us as women, because Honestly, when you look at social media and you see the narratives um, out there, nothing would draw you into the kitchen. Actually, we look at the food porn on networks and we just fetishize over the idea of making a meal mentally, but never done physically. And so it takes real devotion and, and real honor and and reverence to see that this is an extension of my ancestral birthright and legacy that I need to carry on no different than a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout learning new tools and techniques in order to survive. This is a survival skill. And it's one that also is one that we can thrive when we think about it from an economic perspective. We should not be no simply having businesses that I say are the diabetic dessert business, but we should be having businesses that actually are healing our communities. And so our call to action for women is one, heal yourself first, your relationship with food, and reconnect that and share those recipes um, and document your story through the power of recipe to share that with your own children and your families. When you think about the next family reunion you have or the next sisterhood brunch that you have, what conversations and intentionality are being had at the dinner table that goes beyond gossip, but of substance and not superficiality. And when you do that basic foundation, then what career opportunities that you may not see, but you can dream a new world because it literally took the act, which is a privilege of dreaming for me to dream up and drum up the idea of Wanda by taking everything that I thought as my weakness and turning those weaknesses into my superpower. The the idea of coming from the heartland, from an agricultural state, being born down South, being first generation, being the only one in my program, just taking anything that I thought was negative and say, actually, that is where the secret lies. That is where the opportunity lies. And that means being willing to challenge a master narrative to say, the roots is not our only story. I have a unique value that God has put me on this earth and I'm not honoring my gifts, my talents, my purpose. If I do not dive in and discover my own true self and why do I exist? And that is what we want to call for women. Who are you? Why do you exist? And we say you are that food cheerio that our communities have been waiting for. Wonderful, Tamara. Thank you for sharing that again. As a woman and as a mother, I can absolutely relate to you. I also thought my liberation was escaping from the kitchen. I actively avoided food and nutrition classes in high school. And now I'm just proud to be able to sit at a dining table and share with my children some of my cultural foods from Jamaica and have them 
be excited about eating and learning and joining in the preparation. So that's wonderful. Could you tell us, uh, Tamara or Dr. Kelly, what at this moment gives you hope? We've shared quite a few challenges, but what is giving you hope for the future? Well, I will start. What is giving me hope for the future is conversations like this. The fact that there's the space to talk about these seemingly disparate topics and understanding how they come together and understanding the importance of putting the question of Black health and wellness at the forefront. What makes me optimistic is all the success stories and all the efforts personal from growing your own fruit trees to your yard toward initiatives that we see, nations coming together to have agency to to feed their people and explore new markets. So there is activity that is going on. There could be a lot of frustration with the narrative uh, that we see, but it does not mean that good things are not happening. They are. Also, I, I appreciate in our conversations today, the seamless way of going back and forth between the African continent, the mothership, if you will, <laughs> Uh, and our diaspora, and looking at those ancestral linkages and understanding how that memory, those resources have sustained us, and to have pride in it, and to reclaim it, and to know what is serving us well, and then also the liberty to say these are some of the adjustments that we need to make. So I'm excited that there are organizations like WANDA who are convening us together from various professions toward nutrition and food systems and health and wellness. I'm also excited that we take a very holistic and interdisciplinary approach toward what wellness means, right? Beyond the nutrition that goes into our bodies and certainly the linkages of culture and our memory. I think the other thing that gives me hope is, you know, there's a saying in, in technology with data, garbage in, garbage out. And so when we talk about food and even food systems, if you have poor water quality for that food crop, that food crop is also going to be poor. So it is wonderful for me to see how in terms of an ecosystem, you are looking downstream, right, to see what is necessary, right, in order to have the the well-being, not only for the crop production, but for the community and then also for the consumer, and so I think uh, it helps us to think in different ways and to understand those linkages. So that's what keeps me excited. And certainly we have our own sisterhood, you know, if you will. And really there's been great support and blessings from our families, from elders who have noticed people like me who left Fortune 10 companies, right, <laughs> um, to do this work and see the value of it. And as Tamara has said, you know, this is a currency, but it's a different type of currency uh, that we realize that we need. And lastly, I'll say that we have reached, you know, epidemic proportions in terms of our health and wellness. And we are taking the power into our own hands in towards of our internal healing, not just physically, but also emotionally spiritually, that's what wellness is. And we learn and we share wonderful knowledge and tidbits of information with one another. And so it's able to manifest and spread rather quickly. 
I definitely appreciate the tidbits that you've shared. I've I've learned a lot in this conversation and I'm I'm looking forward to following both of your work. Oh, Tamber, I saw you came off mute. So if you wanted to add, feel free. Yeah, I just wanted to say the word hope has special meaning um, because many moons ago before creating Wanda, I created an event called Plant Hope and hope um, had a special um, meaning of helping other people every day. And in the midst of this pandemic, it also has given another meaning of just having optimism, perseverance and enthusiasm on life. Entheos in Greek is, is, is life. And so we need to honor the fact that we have breath in our body. That means every day we wake up renewed to offer hope and be that light and create that pathway for someone else. And so that little song that we hear as little children, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It it really does speak yes. to what we should be embodying. And that's what I see in the work of Dr. Kelly and so many other Wanda women, that they are those lights that beacon of hope in our communities and they are helping other people every day and so that's what is what gives me hope i'm glad you added that as a, as a self-proclaimed optimist I, I think that optimism carries with it a certain responsibility to be doing the work and so it's, it's nice to hear again and again and again people we have who are doing the work who are the people that we're talking to tend to carry some element of optimism because you have to believe that it's possible to even want to continue doing the work so i appreciate what you shared so the question that we ask every single person who comes on, it's also the name of the podcast, it's what we need now. And so um, from your perspective, what do we need now to achieve liberation? Okay, I would say that what we need now are more conversations that give us permission to try things differently. Where we love grandma's cooking and food, grandma's cooking and food was out of necessity and we have access to healthier methods and, and ways now. And we are able to honor what grandma made, <laughs> but certainly advance it toward the health and wellness. So that's one of the things we need. The other thing that we need is to really understand the origins of where and who is harvesting your foods. That does matter. Yes. The wellness of the harvester, the are you kissing the cook who is preparing that food? We really need to give homage and understand the gifts that it certainly represents. So we really need to have a mindfulness um, in terms of food sources. Um, it may surprise you and it connects us in ways that we might care. We need people to support and seek some of the nonprofits that are springing up locally here in the U.S., uh, across the continent as well, in other, other places who are really doing the work. Their support, your input of seeds or um, some harvesting materials, for example, can go such a long way. And really, you know, it, it will replenish itself and, and grow. So um, we need people to to listen to those who are in need. We need to listen to those who are the stewards of the land, and we need to um, support them the best we can. And the inputs can be rather small and have magnificent and exponential returns. Lastly, I will say we need to look at 
Black health and wellness from a holistic standpoint. We're talking about foods and nutrition of what our intake is, but we need a healing so we can be our best selves. And the mindfulness of what we're taking in and the consciousness of why we're eating what we're eating, I think can go toward that kind of healing um, that we've been talking about today. And I would like to add to that. The takeaway message for me is we as a people, should put our mind, our money, and our movement in the direction of our values. And and if you may not have thought about that, I want to offer a few for you to consume. One value is we should be committed to the power of changing the trajectory of our communities. The second, we should be caring enough to empower ourselves and our families. Third, we should be conscious of the colonial tactics that subvert our communal restoration. And fourth, we should be cultivating a power of a healing culture. And fifth, we should be connecting to the power of sisterhood and service. We should be concerned enough to shift the power of the food system. And we should be contributing to a positive impact in our communities and families. And lastly, you can't talk about food without cooking. We should be cooking and writing recipes that celebrate our heritage. And with that, if you believe in these values, these are the values of Wanda. We are seeking support to our Food Shiro Freedom Fund, which funds endowments to fund the education of Black women to pursue degrees in agriculture, nutrition, and dietetics. We've already put the first endowment at Oklahoma State University. We want the next endowment at HBCU, and we will alternate every year. And that means encouraging you to become a friend of WANDA, whether you're an organization or an individual that wants to give and support Black women-led food justice movements. And thank you so much and learn more at IamWanda.org. That's a great way to close. Thank you both. Thank you, Tambra. Thank you, Dr. Kelly, for being our guest today. Um, We will put links to how folks can find you. We'll put all your social media and and all of those resources in our blog. We just really appreciate your time, your brilliance, your insights, and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're glad to be here. Thank you, ladies. Excellent conversation. Really appreciated the knowledge, the new perspectives you shared, the mandates you gave to us, the feeling of empowerment that we can and we should be doing these things. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. Another huge shout out to our guests, Dr. Kelly Page Drabril and Tambra Ray Stevenson. If you want to find out more about how you can support them and support Wanda, check out the show notes where we've got links to social media and websites. If you want to continue thinking about food and food justice, I highly recommend our episode on Black Farmers, which was the previous episode. It should be, you can just scroll right up to see it or down, depending on how you got your settings. We also did an episode last season called Food Justice and another episode on veganism, all of which connect these threads between what we're doing in individually to keep ourselves healthy and what we're doing collectively to keep our food system healthy and increase access. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, click that like, that comment, subscribe, leave a rating depending on where you're listening um, and tell a friend about it. And that's it for now. We will see you next time on What We Need Now.